What poem are we doing today? Can everybody take out the medieval poems? We'll finish oh, okay. the, the medieval things today. up the medieval poems. Remember I, I put all of these together um, well for a couple of reasons. One is to continue our work on the lyric, but two because they're closer in time to Shakespeare and um, my hope was that we would hear the music in them but also something of the inflections in Shakespeare's language that we don't hear because whenever we hear Shakespeare, people speak in our lang in modern English instead of Shakespeare's Renaissance English. And um, these poems, some of them predate Shakespeare. Chaucer does by a couple of hundred years, so they're not his language is not exactly like this, but it's close enough to give you a feel for what his language would have sounded like. I know you're in your imagination, all of us in our imagination with that, but still, it, it hopefully it gives you some sense. Okay, just um, two poems today. That I think we've read all of them. Um, did we do Timor Mortis on page three? No. I don't think we did. So, hi, no, no, hi, Linda. On your way in, Bev made another breakfast bread. It's, it's really good. I always feel like we're, when we come into the, when she cooks, it's a, it's a, it's a den of sin when you walk in this room. Because I can't stop eating it. So good. Oh, did you bring something too? Uh huh. Oh, here. So if everybody. I thought it was mine. Oh, look at you. Look at you. Oh, wow. Oh, good. <coughs> I'll read these if any of you want to get up and. Linda just put out some fruit. No, no, no. You're okay. Uh, um. Two poems, the Timur Mortis and, and Falk, or I mean, sorry, Chaucer's Gentilessa on the very last page. And what I want to do just to get us in to hear, um, to hear that language again, I'm going to read again from the opening lines to Chaucer's Canterbury Tales on page four. So, and um, if you're interested, as I read, you might look at the back page where we've got a tr an English transliteration of it. 
which is an excellent, by the way, an excellent rendering because it, it follows Chaucer's, Chaucer's writing and running couplets, every two lines rhyme, so the rhyme scheme is being carried forward by couplets. The, the Neville Coghill, I think, is the one who did the translation, and he keeps the running couplets. Okay, let me, I'm going to start. So, to go back to Chaucer, just a few lines so that you can hear it again, because I love the sound of it. It's, and it's more rolling than a lyric because it continues, it goes on, it doesn't stop. Um, prologue to Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. And remember, if you want, look at the, if you want, look at the back page and you'll get the English translation of it. And you'll see how close it is, and yet how different it is. Oh, in fact, here, let me do this. Okay? The prologue, Canterbury Tales. This is us, and this is how people would read it today. When in April the sweet showers fall, and pierce the draught of March to the root and all, the veins are bathed in liquor of such power as brings about the engendering of the flower. When also Zephyrus with his sweet breath exhales an air in every grove and heath, Upon the tender shoots in the young sun, his half course in the sign of the ram has run, and the small fowl are making melody that sleeps away the night with open eye. So nature pricks then, and their heart engages, then people long to go in pilgrim, pilgrimages, and palmers long to seek the stranger strands of far off saints. Something happens to us in spring, this, this pricks and the, the this inner prick, something stirs us and sets in motion this desire. And, and it's one with nature. That's the, that's the wonderful thing that we're losing. Because when spring comes, everything's in growth. You know, we're coming out of winter, so that, that time of accept, making a place for death is replaced by this time for life coming. Things bud, the birds come out and announce spring, and you hear the singing. So, Everything in nature is in accord, except us, generally. So this is the time for people to go on their spiritual pilgrimages. They, they visit the saints because it's a time of renewal. So, and, and hold on to this because I think later we're going to do Eliot in the wasteland, and Eliot's going to play off this, but what Eliot's going to do as a modern is make it negative. Because we live in the modern wasteland where we've lost a sense of nature. And he knows that. So when we, when we get there, you'll just remember this, because it'll mean more then. Because you've learned to see poets play off of each other. Right? Virgil used Homer. Dante used Virgil. They carry the past forward, renewing it. It's one of the things. We don't ever lose our past with good poets. They're always carrying it forward. So that's 
the prologue as we hear it, you know, if, if we were to read it today in the class. This is Chaucer. We're, we're doing the medieval lyrics again. <coughs> Quando aprile with a sure suta, the drach of March has pierced to the ruta, and bathed every vein in switch the cura, of which virtue engendered is the flora. Quan Zavarus eager with his sweet of breath, inspired hath in every halt and heath, the tundra croppers and the younger sona, hath in the ramis halva curas irona, and smaller fowlers make in melodeia that sleep in all the nich with open yea. So pricketh am nature in her courages, than longing folk to go on pilgrimages, and palmeres for to seek strange strondes, to ferner halwes kutha in sonde londes, and specially from every shires under of Engelanda to Canterbury they wander. The holy blissful martyr for to seek her, that him hath hopen, when, they, when that day were seca. Something like that. So, <coughs> let's do Timur Mortis on page three. Timur Mortis. In what estate soever I be, Timur Mortis, contribute me. As I went on a merry morning, I heard a bird both weep and sing. This was the tenor of her talking. Timur mortis, conturvat me. I asked that bird what she meant. I am a musket, both fair and gent. For dread of death, I am all shent. Timur mortis, corberate me, conturbate me. Death overwhelms, frightens me. When I shall die, I know no day, what country or place, I cannot say. Wherefore this song sing I may, Timur Mortis, contribute me. Jehozu Christ, when he should die, to his father he gan say, Father, he said in Trinity, Timur Mortis, contribute me. All Christian people behold and see, this world is but a vanity and replete with necessity, Timur Mortis, contribute me. Wake or I sleep, eat or drink, when I on my last end do think, for greater fear my soul do shrink, Timur Mortis, contribute me. God grant us grace him for to serve, and be at our end when we stirve, and from the fiend he us preserve, Timur Mortis, contribute me. Faulkner's gentlest, page five, gentle lesson. <clears throat> He's going back to the first stoke, the beginning of our, the line, Adam, which was the first father from, from whom we all came. And he's making the point that, because remember, Chaucer's living in an aristocratic world. He's a poet at court. He's like Odysseus when he went to the Phaeacians, remember, the, with the Phaeacian king and, and sang his tale. Um, and remember, the, the bard, the, the vates, the singer, moved around in Homer's time from, from village to village and court to court. In Chaucer's time, it's an aristocratic world, Chaucer was a poet at court. So he's singing to a king, it's an aristocracy. And what he's saying is gentlesa, gentlesa, gentleness. Remember, gentleness from Paul is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. 
gentleness, wisdom, patience. Those are the gift, the fruits of the Spirit. Real gentleness, he says, is from within. It doesn't belong to classes. Priests cannot have it. Kings cannot have it. It doesn't, it doesn't come with an office. Presumably it should. I mean, you hope that, but it doesn't always because we've got bad priests, we've got bad kings. So real gentleness, real gentilessa, as he, you know, he would call it in Middle English, <coughs> is something inward. It's native to man. God gave it to all of us. He gave it to Adam, but after the fall we've lost it, and you know, it's a work of recovering. So this is Chaucer's lyric. So this, this is the same Chaucer who wrote the Canterbury Tales. This is a lyric poem that he wrote called Gentilessa. The first stroke, father of gentilessa, what man that claimeth gentle for to be, whoever claims being gentle, because you know, people in the aristocracy claimed to be genteel, you know, that was their birthright. What man that claimeth gentle for to be must follow his trace in all of his witters dressa, vertu to sua and visas for to flee, to, to, in, uh, to cultivate virtues and flee from vices. For unto virtue longest dignite, and noch the reverse softly dare idime. All where he mitre, crone or diadem, even if he wears a mitre, a crown, or a diadem, he still has to work. And Chaucer would have understood that's a work with the spirit. We have to work with him to get it. This first stock was full of righteousness, truer of his word, sober, piteous, and free, that's Adam. Kleiner of his ghost and loved busyness against the vice of slot in honestea, but, and, but his heir loved virtue, as did he. He is not gentle, though he rich seema, all where he mitra, kron, or diademon, even if he wears a minor. Visa may well be heir to old richessa, but there may no man, as men may well see, bequeatha his heir, his virtuous noble, it can't be inherited, it can't be passed on in a state. But there may no man, as men may well see, bequeatheth his heir, his virtuous noblesse, that is appropriate unto no degree, but to the first father in magistry, that maketh him his heir, that can him quema, or were he metra, crona, or diadema. Um, it's not the result of fruit. Its, its source is Adam, as God created him, lost in the fall. It's something that has to be worked at. So, Chaucer, I think, was one of the great um, influences on Shakespeare's whole life. Um, okay. Okay. Um, I want to do this as quickly as I can because I want to... Um, I've got it on my mind to try to be as catechetical as I can at this point in Othello. That's going to take some doing on my part because I'm used to presenting text to students on their own terms. But I, I, want, to, I want to try to shift the emphasis this morning, in, at least in what I do. So a quick look back. Merchant of Venice gives us an image of a new kind of woman 
and, um, and it's important, it seems to me, um, for the work that we've been doing, because every one of the works that we've done up until this point have, um, have taken men as the central figures of the work. The, the, the heroism that's peculiarly masculine, the, 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 the strength, the nobility, the courage, particularly the, the warrior part of the man to, to give himself in battle so that he takes all of, his, all of the things natural to man, his physical strength, the fact that he's physically superior to a woman, he's stronger, to take that in the service of something greater than himself and give it up, Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas. Dante represents a shift in our image of the hero because we see in Dante a, a man who understands that the greatest thing that a man can do isn't just um, be victorious in battle, physical battles, war battles, that the natural end of man is learning. He's supposed to get better in understanding the world. And so it takes Virgil offers himself as his guide, actually sent by Beatrice, i.e. God, that we are, are, the great struggle for man isn't just in terms of arms at war. The great struggle for man is inwardly, spiritually, to learn, to become better. So the whole Divine Comedy was a journey into the interior, the, the sins, the horrible sins that are a part of our nature, the purgatory, the, 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 the condition of accepting those sins, the lawfulness that we've broken laws, that we have to be obedient to those laws, with the help of mercy, taking them on and getting rid of them, and then, in, and then the approach to God in the Paradiso, getting closer and closer to God. So that whole journey changed the landscape of the epic action. It went inward and made learning far more important than physical strength and, um, and the other virtues. It's not until, I mean, you, we can say that Beatrice is, in some sense, the first great heroine, because she's Dante's guide for the last step of his journey. But, you know, Virgil, Virgil has the, the, the center stage for two-thirds of the Divine Comedy. When, when Shakespeare writes, every one of his comedies, almost everyone except for one, has a woman as a heroine. And he's the first one on, on the verge of the modern world that gives us this new image of woman. And we saw um, that, that Venice and the Merchant was the usurious city, the sterile city, that it breeds money. Um, and it's inherent danger. It, it's, it's a risk to itself. Nobody from Venice can be disinterested enough to bring real justice out of the law. If the law is left to itself, Venice is destroyed. It always undermines itself, right? If Shylock gets his way, Antonio's dead. If the Christians get his way and he gets off, the law is dead. In either one of those cases, Venice loses. It gets worse, and everybody acknowledges that. It's only because of what Portia does that Venice survives. So it seems to me, as I've suggested now a number of times, that she's an image of Christ in the world. Um, Bassanio offers his life to her. He who, he who chooses me must risk and hazard all he has. So his entering into that ordeal is a way of offering himself completely. He gives up everything, unlike Morocco and Aragon. Portia does the same. After the ordeal, she says, 
you have everything. I turn them all over to you as my Lord. So what we see is this mutual self-giving between the two of them. Um, and then when, when they learn that Antonio's in trouble, Bassanio leaves and Portia, as you know, puts on the disguising. So in Portia, we see a woman who, she doesn't, she's not passive, she's not sitting home praying. She's not ignoring it. She immediately effaces herself. She puts on a disguise. She gets rid of everything feminine in her. She puts on this disguise, enters this, you can call it a male world, and, um, and she can do what nobody in Venice can because she's the only one who understands the true ends of the law. She got that from Aristotle. We know that she read Aristotle from that, her, her efforts to live the mean. That's an Aristotelian virtue. She's the only one who understands the real nature of the law. So she's the, she's the only one who has the intelligence to do what Shylock does. To take the letter of the law the way that he does and go beyond him. She, you know, he says, this is my bond, this is what I want, and he insists on it. So she, the, her genius is she uses the letter of the law. She says, there's nothing here about blood. You can, you know, you can have this. But, and um, she does what he does, but goes beyond because she wants to see the ends of the law realized, not undercut in, in a wrong spirit that would, that would hurt people. So she, she does that, and what, what, what's um, brought into focus through her actions is the, the cruelty of Shylock, the, the cruelty of the law, and the hypocrisy in some sense of the Christians. Because Bassanio wants to do away with the law, and when, when Portia turns the tables on um, Shylock, Graziano is licking his chops. He's saying, oh, why, you know. Um, remember when, when, when she's saying, um, you have to have justice, and she's denying the Christians, and Shylock is licking his chops, and then she turns it, um, and um, she's going she's gonna to turn it in a way that's going to hurt Shylock. Graziano is licking his chops. I mean, he, he can't relish it enough. And, and so we see that in some ways he's just like Shylock, although he's a Christian. So in terms of hypocrisy, Shylock is, I don't see any of him. I mean, he's just living the law with all of its cruelty. But Graziano is a Christian. He, should, he, he knows he should not live according to the letter. This is Paul, because Paul runs through Shakespeare's works. Um, he, wants his, he wants his pound of flesh, and he's a Christian. So Portia is able to do something nobody in that world can do. And, the, the, and I raise this, that it seems to me one of the virtues that makes it possible for her is obedience. Because in being obedient to her father, it prepares her to be obedient to her husband and to learn to give herself away. And that's what she does in the courtroom. She, she's not doing this for money or prestige or everything that motivates people in Venice. She's doing it in love. And nobody else can do it. And remember, the interesting thing that goes on in, in Venice is Portia's this image of obedience and the wisdom that it can lead her to. I mean, she, she, she's not passive. And Jessica is the opposite. Jessica leaves her father. She couldn't be more disobedient. And yet what she's doing clearly is virtuous. So Shakespeare's not making this simplistic black-white judgment. He's showing that the circumstances are different. What Jessica does in leaving her father is, is right because it's good because the end of our action should be 
the good of another person or the good of ourselves. So you've got this tension between Portia, who couldn't be more obedient, and Jessica, who's leaving. And Shakespeare leaves him there because he, want, he wants to know. Unlike the scientific mind today, which will try to make an exact, you know, this is what virtue is, it can't be, because the circumstances are always different for us. But, but that it's real can't be disputed. What, what Jessica does makes her a better person. What Portia does makes her a better person. The love that they bring to their loved ones will be deeper because of what they do. So there's this tension. So Shakespeare's given us this wonderful image of womanhood you know, that we've not seen. She, she is center stage. We're seeing her do things that we've not seen women do before. And remember the other thing that I added in it, just before the ordeal, when Bassanio is gonna go in for his ordeal, Remember, she, she calls to mind the Trojan War and the fact that Hercules came to rescue this maiden. And she says, I offer myself as the sacrifice. She's not like the Dardanian women who are grieving over this woman who's being offered as a sacrifice. It's an image of Christ. It's a, it's a, it's a foreshadowing of Christ. All the women are grieving. This one woman is being sacrificed. And they're grieving for her. She identifies with the sacrifice. She has given herself up. If we miss that, we, we take away from the greatness of what she does. So we're seeing in her, it seems to me, a Christ figure, somebody that in some ways resembles her and Mary as a woman, but carrying off, pulling off this extraordinary thing. She, she allows a city to survive its own death, to get past what would have been a fatal moment for the city. Okay, so, um, and remember that they all return to Belmont, and that Belmont is surrounded by the music of the spheres. It's not surrounded by chance. Um, when Portia and Nerissa return, um, Lorenzo is talking to Jessica about the music of the spheres, and he, and he says, hark the music, and just then Portia arrives on stage. And, and remember, in Shakespeare's world, stage gestures and actions mean because everything meant in Shakespeare. So when somebody enters the stage, it's speaking. Hark the music. We're, we're, I think we're meant to see she is poetry. She is the music of the spheres embodied. There's nothing that she does that isn't poetry. And Christ is the ultimate image of that. He is the word. He is poetry itself. There's nothing he does that isn't in perfect harmony with the Father, the order of heaven. And so we're meant to carry these things into our reading. And I'm going to come to that in a minute because I'm going to make reading a really big thing today. But anyway, that's the world we lead, we're leading. <clears throat> yeah? But we're still in Venice. Okay? In Othello. But now we're going to see the tragic aspects. And I want to just say this looking ahead. We talked about classes next week, either meeting on Monday morning or Monday night, because next Friday's after Thanksgiving and it's not a good day to meet, but we'll either meet Monday or two weeks off, but we're gonna, I'll write you a letter. Um, when we meet next time, we're gonna finish Othello briefly. There's only two things I want to look at in Othello in our next meeting. It will be the little stage play that Iago puts on 
involving a hanky to convince Othello that Desdemona's um, betrayed him. Um, that's a stage play. Um, Iago's a stage director. He's a playwright. Shakespeare's critiquing poets and showing us something about them because it's by means of that that he convinces Iago or Othello to kill his wife. So I want to look at that very briefly and, um, and then the end when Othello kills Desdemona, just briefly at that scene because a strange thing happens after he kills her, she's pronounced dead, Amelia and Othello think she's dead, and then a moment later she speaks. So we've got to look at this ending because strange things happen. So just, and then he kills himself. So major questions for you guys next week, a couple of them. One is, we've been talking about Venice in multiple terms. In Merchant of Venice, it's the usurious city, the sterile city, that there's something unnatural about Venice. It's a new kind of regime. It's not like anything we've seen in the ancient world. Um, in this play, I'm calling it the unreal city, the unnatural, that there's something inimical to love. There's something at the heart of Venice that attacks love because those of you who've read it know there isn't anybody, almost nobody at the end who isn't killed. And largely for reasons of love. I mean, love gets badly abused in this place. So there's something in the commercial regime that is detrimental to love. What is it? What is Shakespeare showing us? If, if, this is a, if this is a class on prophecy, what is he teaching us to see about our city and ourselves? Because I'm assuming that, and I've said it before, that if we don't read this and identify with all of the characters, then we're not reading well. And that means hard thing to say if we're not identifying with Iago in some way. If we don't see Iago in us, then like Dante, we're missing something, because Dante had to go into hell to look at the worst sins before he could come out. So it takes some courage, I think, to look at this. So what is it about this Venetian world that's so unnatural, so unreal? That's one. The second question, um, <clears throat> when Iago puts on this play, he uses that handkerchief to convince Othello that Desdemona's guilty. She slept with Cassio. She's been unfaithful. That hanky is a sign, and Othello completely misreads it, absolutely misreads it. He makes inferences about it that have no basis in reality. Iago didn't prove anything, and yet he's convinced. Shakespeare is showing us, I believe, that there's something in the nature of Venice that encourages people to look for signs and to read into them meanings they don't have. That's so important. Last week there was a reading in the Bible, or this week, one of the readings in the morning were the Pharisees coming to Christ. I think it was actually an earlier reading of his casting the money changers out of the temple. And the Pharisees came up to him and said, give us, explain, give us a sign of this, give us the meaning um, I should have. And um, oh, I'd have to go back. I've got it here, but I don't want it. The Pharisees say, 
make sense of this as a sign. What is this a sign of? And you know this yourself from, you know, being a, by the, well, I've only got one. It's freezing here. I'm sorry. It's these people, I don't know what they're doing, but. Um, after the multiplication of fish, the, his disciples ask him for a sign. Christ gets angry at him. Um, he, they have just witnessed a miracle and know that Christ is the source of it. How can they not know the kingdom is with them right then? And they're looking for signs. And he says, and then he says, the, you know, the people very often he talks about um, the, the only sign you'll get is the sign of Jonah. That, that over and over again, people keep looking for a meaning in signs and missing that the kingdom is there. They keep investing signs with more meaning. Is that clear? It happens with the multitude, it happens with the disciples, it happens with the Pharisees. In various contexts, this issue keeps coming up. It's as if the Jews who kept wanting, believing that a Messiah would come and wanting him to come, they kept looking for signs that he was here or coming. And when he comes, they miss him. Shakespeare's showing us something similar to that in Othello. Othello takes this as a sign and he absolutely misreads it. And, and you, I hope you're reading well now. You know that, that everything means in Shakespeare, that everything has so much more meaning than it seems. What has he shown us? What is it about the commercial regime that encourages people in this tendency to look for signs and to invest them with more meaning than they actually have at the expense of something else, more real? Is that clear? What's going on? What is it? So that's the other question. The final question has to do with that scene when Desdemona speaks, is she really alive? And what happens afterwards? Does she die and then come back to life? You know? And then what happens afterwards when Othello takes his life? He takes his life. Is it suicide and an act of cowardice? Is this tragic in that sense? Or is there something else going on that has a positive take on it? How do, because our tendency with tragedy, I, by the way, I think most people, I'm gonna, this is why I'm gonna come to this next week. We're gonna, we're gonna do, I'm gonna do genres next week. I'm gonna talk about tragedy and comedy and, and metrics, meter, the language, because I've been talking about it and not covered it, but next week we're gonna talk about tra tragedy and comedy. Most people think of tragedy as this horrible thing that happens. It is horrible. Is, is there something positive to what happens in a tragedy that we very often don't see that's important for us to see? And I'll just leave it there. So how do we look at Othello when he takes his life? Is that just an act of despair so that we're left with this heavy negation, this overwhelming feeling of negation and loss? And, or is there something else? How do we look at the ending of tragedies? To do that, we have to look at genres. And so those, those are some things to keep in mind for next week. Okay, we'll finish um, Othello next week and, and start Hamlet. Okay. Capitalism. The word capital come, means head. Venice is a, is a, a regime in which it elevates the importance of the intellect. It encourages 
people to be intellectually resourceful, right? It, it, it's based on the belief that, um, unlike the feudal world where you had classes, that every individual, if he's willing to risk, can do certain things to improve his life, to make his life better. So there's a greater freedom. Man is less bound by a class structure. He can be resourceful, he can risk himself. The negative side of that is that you know from having read Dante, you know, this is, Dante, this is purgatory and this is the inferno, this is hell. Remember that the, the defining condition of the inferno was um, he who enters here has lost all hope, lose all hope once you enter hell. But hell is the place in, in which people go who have lost the good of the intellect because it was the greatest gift God gave us. And at the center, at the center of hell, the two last levels were levels of fraud. That, um, that the depth of hell was defined by the worst kind of abuse of the intellect, that people were there because they used the intellect in ways that it was not intended to be used. So the greatest gift God man you gave us, man uses to deceive, to trick, to get ahead, to justify himself, to make himself right when he's not. What we've got in Venice is a regime in which people are encouraged to use their intellects. What does Iago do? He uses his mind to deceive every, and he's called honest, <laughs> honest Iago, God. Honest Iago. He uses his intellect. He, he lives in a regime in which people have been encouraged to use their intellects. What happens when people, and remember, the, it was in Merchant of Venice in which people used the intellect, but nobody in Venice was capable of achieving the justice that Portia did. For that, she needed philosophy. And who in Venice is going to study philosophy? People in Venice want to get money and become successful and rich. So Venice is the regime in which people are encouraged to use their intellect in ways that aren't always good. And Iago's the image of that, the, the product of that, the, the fruit of that instinct, I think. Um, he, manip he manipulates everybody. And, and remember, I think I read those passages where in the very beginning he says, um, Othello chose Cassio instead of me when I had been his friend and we stood together in battle and Cassio's just got this academic learning, he doesn't know what he's doing, he shouldn't have chosen him, and he envies Cassio. So it's out of envy that he wants to get back at, at Othello. Another act later, I, I think I read that passage where he's by himself and he says there's some rumor that um, Othello slept with my wife, Amelia. And he wants to get back at him. So the play begins where he states that his reason for wanting to get Othello is envy, and then it shifts to jealousy because there's some word that Othello slept with. Well, either we believe that, and even if we don't, it doesn't matter because he says, even if it's not true, he's going to. So what, we're, what, what Shakespeare's showing us in Iago is the way that the intellect will create reasons for itself to constantly justify a bad end. And I'm saying, to, I mean, catechetically, 
That's something I think all of us do often without seeing it, that very often it's so subtle, we make up these reasons for doing things to justify things that are not good in us sometimes. And sometimes they can be small and subtle, sometimes they can be major. That's what Dante was teaching us in the Divine Comedy, right? I mean, that's why we went into hell, to look at those things. Here, we see a full-blown play playing it out. That in Iago, we have an image of the way in which the intellect, when it's separated from love or the heart, it is used to hurt people in order to justify itself. And remember the, that initial tag that he used to identify himself. I am that, I am, I am not what I am. Remember I read that line. That's the antithesis of I am that am. Iago is the antithesis of Yahweh. Yahweh, I am that am. Yahweh is being. He's, he's life-giving. He's blessing. Iago, I, I am not what I am. He is the antithesis. He is the instinct to destroy. And if you watch him through the play, remember when they, when they arrive at, at um, Cyprus and Iago makes fun of his wife and, and Desdemona says, Praise a woman, let's see how you praise him. And all he does is tear, tear them down. He tears her down, tears. And, and he has that line where he says, I'm nothing if I'm not critical. Amazing. What a great line. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Act two, scene one, about line 125. Oh, gentle lady, do not put me to it. Because he's challenged to praise women, and what he'll go on to do is to facetiously make, and it, it's all seen, it seems in fun. But in a telling way, it's a really, it's a revelation. Do they see through it? No. But it really does tell us something about him. He says, oh, gentle lady, do not put me to it, for I am nothing if not critical. He is the modern intellect critical of everything around him. And I, and I have to say this, a critical mind is not a bad thing because it helps get us the truth. But a critical mind that's detached from love will always tear down, and that's what he does. He, he, he uses his critical mind to make people something they're not. That's demonic. That's a very different thing. Is that clear? He will, he will say to Rodrigo that Desdemona and Cassio are sleeping with each other, you know, that she's... And he will, he will say things about Cassio, they're not... So the, it's not that the critical mind is bad, it's that the critical mind in him can only make things something they're not make them worse. So what we're seeing are these instincts, these ways of being that are peculiar to the Venetian regime because of the, the way in which it elevates the critical intellect. To be resourceful, to get ahead, to be clever. But this is the negative, the tragedy, the tragic side of it. Okay. Um, and this is, this is for next week, these signs, um, these fictions. Why, why are they so peculiar to Venice? Um, I just want to spend a few minutes looking at, at Iago in a more focused way this morning. But before we do, I want to get to this notion of reading. Because we've been talking about it again and again. Here's the cave. Remember, here's the cave with the people with their books. And here are all of us down here chained, chained. 
And what we see are shadows that are projected from this light. Shadows or images or appearances. And we, according to Plato, we take appearances for reality. We don't see beneath them. It's only the, per it's only the person who begins to question instead of acting like he has all the answers. Because if he has all the answers, he has no reason for moving. He'll stay there the rest of his life. It's only the person who questions that comes out. And once he comes out here, he realizes this is the truth, that these were all shadows and appearances. And he goes back to try to help people see that. And you know what happens. When Socrates is killed. Christ is killed. So people, do, people don't like having their convictions challenged or questioned. We don't. <coughs> this morning I'd like to look at this not just in terms of darkness, the darkness of the cave. Remember coming out of the darkness into the light because out here is the, the sunlight, the truth. We're not going to come out of the darkness. <coughs> in the Gospel of St. John, the darkness um, can't overcome the light, but the light can overcome the darkness. So the, the imagery of John in that Gospel is darkness and sin. So in a Christian world, um, what Plato understood in intellectual terms, in terms of just seeing that we don't see the right way, we see in terms of sin that this isn't just the darkness, it's a world of sin. And it's important to come out of it. And we believe we can't do it without grace. Um, so the whole question of reading I want to return to. How to get out of the cave how to get out of the cave. Remember, Plato said, it's only the poet who sees the eternal things, who can tell stories that are, are faithful to the world as it, as it appears to us. This is our Venetian world, this is us. It's only the poet who can return us to that world of appearances, but who can, who's seen the eternal things and who can bring us to them, who is the true poet, yeah? Okay. We talked about reading last week. I don't want to go back to that. Um, I know this is, is, is going to um, be a little bit repetitive, but let me do this anyway. Um, let's see, where did I do? Yeah. I want to go back to Merchant of Venice. First of all, to, to do this with Portia. How do we read poetry? You know, from the beginning, I've been saying we don't read very well. And we've not concentrated on poetry in a way that, that helps us to see that there's a certain way we have to read poetry as if it's a different language. But that's what we're going to do this morning, because I've not done that before. But I, I started to do it last week a little bit, but I want to do it again. That we have to learn to see poetry as has a distinct kind of knowledge. It's, 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 so if you're an empiricist today reading poetry, the likelihood is you'd misread it and you wouldn't see it. I want to look at two things in, in Portia, or in Merchant of Venice, in Portia and what she does, just to illustrate this. If you've got Merchant of Venice, turn to it, but if you don't, don't worry about it. In Act 4, Scene 1, in Merchant, we're in the courtroom and the, the Duke and the Christians have appealed to Shylock to show mercy. And you know that Shylock is going to have nothing to do with it. He wants his bond. He insists on it. 
And he makes it clear that he doesn't feel any need to give reasons. He wants his bond. Even if it means a person dies, that's how vindictive the law can be. That's, Paul makes that really clear. We're, we're meant to see that one of the dangers of the law is that it, it can make us self-righteous. That we're not gonna, because we're so right, we're not gonna move off it, even if it means the death of another person. So there's something in the law that makes us, that brings out that there's something in us that's murderous, that we are murderers. That's the danger. Portia appeals to him, and Shylock still doesn't relent. And then she gives this speech. And you, it's a famous speech. We didn't read it, and you all know it. I just want to read it quickly. This is about one line, line 180 in Act 4, Scene 1. Portia, then must the Jew be merciful? Shylock, on what compulsion must I? Tell me that. I don't have to be merciful. B.S. Get on with this. Portia says, the quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attribute to awe and majesty, wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings. But mercy is above his sceptered sway. It is a throned in the hearts of kings. It is an attribute of God himself. And earthly power doth then show likest gods when mercy seasons justice. Therefore, Jew, though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy, and that same prayer doth teach us all to render the deeds of mercy I have spoke this much to mitigate justice of thy plea, which if thou follow, the strictest court of Venice must needs give sentence against the merchant there. If you refuse, we, we have to carry out the justice against him. It's interesting, it doesn't work. I mean, he refuses still. When she turns the law on Shylock, the, <laughs> Graziano wants justice without mercy. He wants to see Shylock get killed. but. Portia turns to um, Antonio and says, what mercy will you show? And that's when, and after they've turned it on him and said that he, Shylock now owes his life to Venice because he actually tried to kill somebody. And Antonio says, half of the money that you keep will go to your son-in-law and your daughter, and you have to convert. Now, some people see that as anti-Semitic. I, I can understand the reasons for that. I don't think that's what's going on. Shylock doesn't have to accept that. I think we believe as Christians that if, if we were put to that because we see that in the Bible, we, we cannot denounce our faith without losing salvation because our understanding is the ultimate end is with God so that we have every reason for giving up everything on earth um, for that faith. We cannot renounce it for anything earthly because we're giving up eternity and bliss. Um, so Shylock does concede in the, in his life and his conversion in, um, in modern terms because of our notions about tolerance. Probably lots of people would see that as cruel or something. I don't think it is because for the Christian, the Christian believes that salvation is our ultimate end and what we do here matters. So there's another way to look at that. But anyway, this is our speech on mercy. Now hold on to that, okay? When they return to Belmont, you remember what happens. Portia's off with, I think, Lorenzo, and suddenly they hear 
Graziano and um, Nerissa quarreling. And they ask what's going on, and, and they're informed that um, the two men gave up their rings to these clerks. And um, while they're describing it, Bassiano is overhearing it, and he knows he's about ready to get it, because <laughs> Graziano is getting it from Nerissa. So the, the question here is, what are the two women doing? And it seems to me, in the same graciousness that Portia brought to the courtroom, they're, they're teaching their husbands to stop being so cavalier, because we've seen in this play, the husbands are too ready to risk themselves and to risk others. There's a spirit of presumption in that. So Bassanio is worried because he knows he's about ready to get it. And then, and like this, turn to line 180 if you can, just for a minute, because this is comic. Bassiano, wife, I were best to cut off my left Which hand and swear I lost during defending. Which scene? Act 5, scene 1. Did you all hear that line? I, I, it would be better if I cut off my hand than what I'm going to get from my wife in a minute. <laughs> he knows just how bad it's going to be. And look at Graziano. He, Graziano's just been exposed, and Graziano says this, my lord Graziano gave his ring away. He did it too. <laughs> I mean, Shakespeare's treatment of Graziano, I think, is just bright. He, he, and he's marrying Nerissa, so we know that he's a good man, but there's almost nothing good about what this guy does as a Christian. Look, he did it too. He's doing everything he can to get out of it. And then there's this exchange. Portia looks at Bassanio and, and says, you didn't do this, did you? Um, and then ba Bassiano, um, sweet, this is about line 190 or so. Sweet Portia, if you did know to whom I gave the ring, if you did know for whom I gave the ring, and would conceive for what I gave the ring, and how unwillingly I left the ring, when naught would be accepted but the ring, you would, you would abate the strength of your displeasure. Why that rhyme? Because that's, that's so conspicuously poetic, and it's not the kind of language you would hear from a man when he's getting defensive, giving excuses for himself about what he's done to his wife. Notice Portia's response. If you had known the virtue of the ring, or half her worthiness that gave the ring, and your own honor to contain the ring, you would not have then parted with the ring. What man is there so much unreasonable if you had pleaded? And she goes on. So she picks up the quoting, and then, and everyone is a reason for him not to have done that. She's giving all these reasons. But there's this rhyming. So you, you either say, and I've raised this question before, either poets are what the philosophers say, they're just embellishing this stuff, giving pretty lines, and they're liars? Or there's something else going on here? What's going on? I think we did this with Othello last time, didn't we? When I, I'm going to read those lines again, but anyway, what's going on here? <coughs> the slipping into oral poetry, where you actually hear in a very conspicuous way what's going on. Is that a shift in consciousness, or is it? A, uh, is he claiming something about Shakespeare or, or Bassiano? Who's the? Yeah, I don't. I'm not sure. <laughs> Somebody's. If you go into poetry, you're, there's something. Um, there's a different way of perceiving something, right? Uh, yes. So yeah. that you, if you slip into poetry, then you you're going to. It's an indication that maybe there's a, an inkling in you about what 
what or a spirit in you yeah. that's different. It, take all of us, I mean, go back to some fight you've had with your husband or a loved one or a family member or something where you're really quarreling and it gets heated and not very good and you know, you say things. If the rings came up in an argument, you know that that word would keep coming, you keep coming back to it when you fought with each other. Let's, whatever it is, the bill you didn't pay or let it be whatever you want. In an argument, you keep coming back to that word, right? Um, so that would be the focus of the argument. Lots of passionate things would be said, probably, that you would sometimes regret or, you know. So I think what Shakespeare's doing is being true literally to the circumstances that the rings are addition. And I remember that line, this is about one line 70, a thing stuck on with oath upon your finger and so riveted with faith unto your flesh. For a Christian, when you vow, you're not just making a vow of fidelity, you're not giving your word, for a Christian, that's fixed in your flesh, because as a Christian, we believe with Christ, we have to be crucified in our faith. We have, we have to live it. Not in our heads, in our bodies. We have to give our bodies to this, all of us. So this isn't just something of the head. This is, has to do with flesh, as we are fleshly creatures. <clears throat> so you've got all these, you've got these rhymed exchanges seems to me he's doing here, I thought we did this last week with Othello, we're going to go back and I'll do it again in a minute, but um, he's showing us that the, he's being faithful to the literal circumstances, that the rings are at issue, but they're slipping into poetry as a way of showing that behind this quarrel is a graciousness and a beauty and an order. And it's, it's a question that I ask myself whether when couples fight, even if they sometimes get fierce, there isn't a goodness that we miss because we stay on the surface. All we hear are the surface words. When what's underneath is honor, violated, a righteous anger, you know, a beauty to what's going on in the soul, even in the midst of a, what can be an argument. But I think they're also. I think he's also showing it's in the nature of Bassiano and Portia because Nurse and, and Graziano don't slip into poetry. These are the two people who gave themselves completely to each other. So there's a graciousness and a beauty and an order in the way that they quarrel. That he's showing us that there is some beauty here that can that can only be expressed this way. So once again, if we're, if, we're, if we're caught in a world of appearances, the question is how do we get out? How do we get out? Self-giving, graciousness, beauty. Graciousness is more than the truth put graciously, not vitriolically or, you know, violently. Um, I mean, look at the riots going over. People are protesting. There's a way to protest and a way not to. There's a way to fight with each other. You know, and hopefully, even when we don't fight well, we always hope we get to a better ground because we want to get better. So I think in the language here, he's showing us that that's what's happening. That here's a couple quarreling about something very, very deep. This is not an issue, this is not a small issue. The rings were crucial, because remember, riveted, riveted with faith under your flesh. This goes to the very nature of your being. You should not have done this. Um, <coughs> it's playful, it's gracious, but it's serious too. It's an underlying respect for one another, mm -hmm. don't you think? Yep. That 
yeah. the way they are. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. So next time you have a fight with your loved one, slip into poetry. <laughs> I want to see how many of you can do that. <laughs> now be nice, Linda. <laughs> Okay, here. I want to do this now with Othello, too. We've already done this, but let me do it again. Um, just quickly, let's go over these. Turn to Act 1, Line 2 in Othello. Act 1, sorry, Act 1, Scene 2, Line 30 or so. Iago and Othello are walking together and they see this group approaching and we know that Brabantio has gathered people against Othello to arrest him. So it, it, it is potentially a violent confrontation. Iago says to him, because remember Iago is the one that set the whole thing in motion. He says to Othello about line 30, those are the Ray's father and his friends, you were best go in, better turn in here and go in this house. Othello, not I, I must be found. My parts, my title, and my perfect soul shall manifest me rightly. Is it they? He has no fear of what's about to happen. Um, go over to line 60. The two Greek groups meet. Both sides start to draw their swords. We looked at these lines, didn't we? Yeah. yeah. Keep up your bright swords, for the dew will rust them. Good senor, you show more command with years than with your weapons. The, the expression of respect in those lines, you know, that your years will have great, uh, he has respect for the age of the man. I mean, this is, this is a good man. And that line, keep up your bright swords, for the dew will rust them. What general speaks lines as poetic as that? What an extraordinarily beautiful line. He's, a, he's a, a soldier who doesn't want to see his men waste themselves. Because that's most important in a field of battle. I mean, this man is, I think men are given to that more than women. I mean, there's something efficient-like. When it gets dark, it gets machine-like in men. It becomes almost mechanical. That's, I think, a danger for men. But it's that efficiency, that not wanting to waste something. And um, go down. After he defends himself, um, Brabantio says, you're going to go to prison. This is line 85. Othello, what if I do obey? How will the Duke be there with, how may the Duke be there with satisfied? Whose messengers are here about my side upon some present business of the state to bring me. What can I do to answer you? That's completely docile. Yeah, what can I do? How can I answer this? What if I obey? He's not going to fight. I mean, in every respect, Shakespeare's showing us an extraordinary man. Go over to um, Act 1, Scene 3, line 85. They ask him to defend himself, and he says, rude am I in speech. It's about line 81. It'd probably be different in your text. 
he, think, he sees himself as a warrior. He's, he's not a man who's used to using his words to defend himself or set out a proposition. He's a fighter. Now go on. Um, the, you remember the quarrel is settled, and then um, they send the fellow off to Cyprus um, to, in order to engage this, this Turkish fleet that's been gathering to attack Cyprus, because this is during the period when the Turks were taking control of Crete and Rhodes and those other, they actually did, historically. Um, um, Othello arrives and everybody's waiting for Othello, I mean Desdemona arrives and everybody's waiting for Othello and then finally he arrives and when the two of them greet this act two scene one line 180 Othello comes and he sees Desdemona and says oh my fair warrior my dear Othello he says it gives me wonder great is my content to me to see you here beside me oh my soul's joy if after every tempest comes such calms, may the winds blow till they have weak wakened death. And he goes on and on and on. If it, were, if, I, if it were now to die, twere now to become most happy, for I fear my soul hath her content so absolute that not another comfort like this succeeds in unknown hate. I mean, who? There are times when it, I, there's Dante, as great a poet as Dante is, his language never gets this close to something. Um, heavens forbid, she says, she just hopes for everything to grow. Amen to that, sweet powers, I cannot speak enough of this content. It stops me here, it is too much of joy. They kiss. Um, two, one, one more. Remember when she comes to Othello to persuade him to, to take up, to, to take Cassio back into his graces again? And he says, um, this is act three, scene three, about line 80. Pretty no more, let him come when he will. I will deny thee nothing. I will deny thee nothing. Um, and then he says about line nine, because she's been pressing the case for Tessie, remember? And, and, and she, because she's innocent about it all, she says, oh, that's like, blowing me off. This is something very serious to me. So she presses it even more because she's in earnest. And then um, he asks her to leave him for a minute. She leaves and then he says, line 90, excellent wretch, perdition catch my soul, but I do love thee. And when I love thee not, chaos is come again. And then I, I read the last lines, didn't I? It is the, it is the cause, it is the cause. I, didn't I do that last week? Well, go, well, okay, then go there. Let's just do it quickly. <clears throat> this is about reading poetry, that, that it's important that we not approach it looking for literal prose, as if literal prose were reality, because that's an empirical mindset. You know, that if it's not literally the way people speak, it's not true. That's our belief today. Is that clear? I'm not sure. Is that clear? If it's not literally the way it appears, then it's not real. Because the only thing that's real for an empiricist is what we see with our senses. We're here. We've got to learn to see that poetry, the great poets, put us literally in that world, but are doing something different with language to get us out. 
you know, because we've been doing that all for the year. The lyric poems have this beauty. And are we together here? Okay. Are we? Is there a question? Is that not clear? Yeah. What line? Where are? Yeah. Where are we? Well, right now we're at five, Act Five, Scene Two, the death scene. But, but hold on, because I'm not. Did you have a question? No. You okay? Because some of you have puzzled looks. Just processing it. You know, hmm? just processing it. Okay. Yeah. Remember that. I mean, remember that I gave you this argument. Bakhtin, who's the modern Russian formalist has said that one of the things that makes the novel great is because it so immediately imitates reality. It stays in prose. So it's more responsive to the actual idioms of different peoples. So it's more open-ended, more faithful. It's not constrained by verse requirements the way great poets are, Shakespeare, Dante. Because he would say, Shakespeare has to make all this fit verse. But I think that's too literalist, a reading of poetry. I'm, that's the case I'm making. He's saying, moderns will say, it's, it's got to be faithful to empirical fact. And I'm saying the danger is when we read poetry, if we bring that mindset to it, we're going to misread it. Because I'm saying the great poet is trying to be faithful to literal fact, to what's actually going, ring, 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 ring. You took my ring. You, you know, if you got into an argument, even if you didn't break into prose, every 15th word would be ring. You'd be, you, if you were a wife whose husband did that, you'd be scolding him, and every 10th word would be ring. You did this with my ring. Why'd you do that with my ring? It was my ring. You should not have done it. Give my ring back. This is really funny. I, um, <laughs> huh? Sounds like you've had a lot of practice. <laughs> so, sadly, I have. But I hope gladly I've, I've learned from it. I've got, I mean, we've got a, I don't know that I should say this right now, but my our middle son's wife got so furious with it, with her husband, with our son one time. She took off his ring and threw it. And then five minutes later was desperate, looking for it, couldn't find it. And said, this is really funny. Said she said, said a prayer to, who's the, the saint of? Anthony. Lost causes and lost Anthony. Anthony. She said a prayer, and a minute later she found it. <laughs> but I can hear that quarrel: ring, ring, ring. You know. <laughs> um, so my point is, he's being faithful to literally what goes on, but in but doing something with language that raises questions for us: what's going on? What's the effect of hearing poetry? Why does he do that instead of just writing literally the words? Because poetry can do something. It has a role, the beauty, the elegance, the respect, the nobility, that we, the graciousness that, that gets expressed in those lines that's so important for us if we're going to learn to have those feelings and not just trapped on the literal level. Yeah? So it humanizes the situation. More deeply, yeah. Yes. The poet, yes. If Christ is the poet, there's nothing he said that wasn't truthful. Right? So we're being asked to imitate him emotionally to make our emotions better, nobler, more beautiful, more gracious, more truthful. How easy is that? That's why I laughed and said to everybody, now, next time you've got to get into a quarrel, you've got to slip in the book. <laughs> Fight with your husband or your wife or your children. or Like we can all do that. When I, when I have something hard to say to my I mean, not anymore, but I can remember. There, usually, when I, if I have something hard to say to my oldest son, say, 
I find that it's so much easier to say it with this, with a genuine love and a trust that he will hear me, you know. But 20 years ago when he wouldn't listen, <laughs> here, look at the last lines and then... Adolescents don't read poetry. <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> if our politicians would read poetry, we I would know. be in a... Act 5, scene 2, opening line. It is the... Remember, he's sitting on the bed, there's a candle. He's looking at the candle and saying, if I put you out, I can relight you. But notice the language of it, because he's even talking about a, the candle flaming minister. I can put thy former light, res, should I repent me? Who uses a word, repent, to talk about regretting putting out a candle and wanting to turn it on? Because it's so appropriate to the scene, because he's going to, the guilt that he's going to bring on himself for doing this, and he knows it. So the whole language is true to the, the, the torment the suffering that he's experiencing in the moments in the moment. Now remember, this is this great man we've been watching. But Iago worked this thing that so turned this greatness that it's led him to this. He's about ready to take the life of the thing that he loves more than anything in the world. Othello. And it's the courtroom language, cause. I have a cause here. It is the cause, it is the cause. My, this, if above all for him, this is an issue of justice. He's got a cause. So this is not a courtroom scene. It's almost like this is a cause before the seat of judgment. This woman has done this. She has violated. I don't want her to do it again or to another man. Because he thinks she's been doing it to other men. That this is a horrible crime. It is the cause. It is the cause, my soul. Let me not name it to you, you chase stars. It is the cause. Yet I'll not shed her blood nor scar the whiter skin of hers than snow and smooth as monumental alabaster, yet she must die, else she betray more men. Put out the light, and then put out the light. If I quench thee, thou flaming minister, I can again thy former light restore, should I repent me. But once put out thy light, thou cunningest pattern of excelling nature, I know not where is that Promethean heat that can thy light relume. When I have plucked the rose, I cannot give it vital growth again. It needs must wither. I'll smell thee on the tree. If God did something, he could restore it. Promethean heat. As a man, he can't. God can give life. God can bring life back. We saw that with Christ. Man can't. So he knows if he does this, it's over. He kisses her, O balmy breath, that doth almost persuade justice to break her sword. One more, one more. Be thus when thou art dead, and I will kill thee and love thee after. One more. God, this is, he so loves her. And um, who can write language like this? One more, and that's the last. So sweet was ne'er so fatal. I must weep, but they are cruel tears. This sorrow's heavenly. It strikes me. Where it doth love, she wakes. Now he asks her to confess because he doesn't want her to, I mean, even there, there's a mercy. He doesn't want her to go to hell. He's going to kill her. And she won't. He has, she has no idea what's going on. Now remember, my question last week was, why does Shakespeare give all these beautiful lines to Othello? He says, I am root of speech. The farthest thing you could expect, he spent his life as a, as a warrior fighting cannibals. 
the anthropophagi or you know, all these strange creatures that so attracted Desdemona when she heard the story. He's lived in a strange world. Venice is a world of education. It cultivates people to use the intellect. He's not of that world. He's a, he's a warrior. He's an athlete. He, um, why does Shakespeare put in his mouth words that are more noble than almost any other lover hero that Shakespeare created? I think I've asked this before. We've spent a minute with this, right? Hmm? That it's his way of showing what can't be shown if, as a writer, he can find Othello to his actual prose words. Because what man, I think the point is, what man can give expression to those deepest things inside of him except the poet? And he, can the poet do it with his beloved? I'm not even sure he could do it there. I, don't, I mean, I don't know, but it, it doesn't matter. The, the point is, how many men, if, if these are things that show the nobility of the soul, how many men could find words that could do an adequate job of rendering them? What he's showing through the poetry is not, he's not being literally faithful to the words of, of somebody like Othello that, that he would speak. What he's showing is the beauty, the nobility, the intensity, the depth of this man's emotions. All those things that he himself could never express with his use of words. That is, he's showing us again, he's being faithful to the literal circumstances of this world, but he's showing us the sentiment. It was what Tom said a while ago, you know, that, how did you put it, that it, it's, it's like it's helping to cultivate those feelings within us so that we are more capable of feeling those things, the things that will help get us out of the darkness to see the beauty, the nobility. And I think I used the example last night. It's so hard for me to read Othello when I read it. I mean, I don't read this anymore because I'm just so far, I'm so far away from it. I'm doing this other the work I'm doing, but I don't read it. But when I read this, these passages, it's impossible for me to come out of it and not think about the judgments when I, that I make when I see a gang member or a guy who dresses in, in such a stupid, openly defiant or slovenly or, you know, whatever. That I, that I hear those passages in the, in the Psalms where, God said, where the psalmists say, or, or in one of the Old Testament books, God loved the good and the bad, the rain falleth on the good and the bad, that we're supposed to love our enemies, you know, that, that somewhere, you know, if you see somebody with tattoos all over their body and looking ridiculous from the standpoint of respectability, that you... you you have to realize there's something inside that person we don't see. There's some, God created these, at the center of the soul, there is something noble in his image. We live in a Protestant world that makes everything black and white. Man, after the fall, man's depraved. He's depraved. We, we don't believe that. We believe that we lost our goodness in a wound. But God made man in his image, that there's this extraordinary nobility. It's terribly wounded and flawed, but it's still there. Shakespeare is giving us, like Dante or Homer, he's, he's showing that there's this nobility inside of man beneath the appearances of things. Can we see it? Can we feel it? It'll change the way we relate to people. You know, that's, the, that's our work here, so. 
Here, one more thing, and then I want to stop on this reading, this whole point about reading. But this is really interesting to me. Let's see what you guys make of this. You all understand what, what I'm getting at here, how important reading is and how often we misread, that we so often get stuck on the surfaces of things. We don't see. The poet is the one that, to help us see beneath the surfaces and feel for those things things that too often we don't. We don't see, we don't feel. We, we're left in our analytical heads on the surfaces, trying to get underneath. But even if we get underneath, do we feel the things that we should? The poet's the one who helps us to feel those things. Turn to, um, I love this, turn to 3-1, Act 3, Scene 1. The commotion has already taken place. Montano has been wounded, right? And Cassio's been demoted, right? And, and the night is closing. So the revels are over, the wound takes place, and now the dark things are going to pick up, right? For, because everything after this point is going to get sinister. We're going to watch Iago work on Othello. So Act 3 marks that this is a turning point. And this, this clown arrives um, to play music. Cassio says, Master, play here. I will content your pain, something that's brief and bid good morrow, Jenna, because it's getting early in the morning. Clown, why, masters, have your, estimate, have your instruments been in Naples, that they speak in the noseless? They must sound awful, I guess, that he's making fun of how badly they, how bad they sound. Musician, how, sir, how? Are these, I pray you, called wind instruments? I marry, they are. Oh, thereby hangs a tail. Whereby hangs a tail, sir? Mary, sir, by many a wind instrument. Is everybody getting the pun there? If this is a wind instrument and the, and the guy says, there, thereby hangs a tail, he doesn't mean just a tail, a narrative, a story. He means a tail that's farting, that's passing gas. Yeah. So there's this comic exchange. In language, these, these veiled puns. Yeah? The musician say, says, whereby hangs a tail? The clown, Mary, sir, by many a wind instrument that I know. But masters, here's money for you. And the general so likes your music that he desires you for love's sake to make no more noise with it. Cease and desist, go away. Pay you to go away. Musician, well, sir, we will not. If you have any music that may be heard to it again, that may not be heard to it again. But as they say, to hear music, the general does not greatly care. We have none, then go away. So the issue is here, if you have music that can't be heard, play that. If it's heard, get out of here. Okay? Now, let me just say this to, as a preface to this. Shakespeare has, in every tragedy, there, or most of the tragedies, there are these comic scenes, and critics often talk about them in terms of comic relief, that they're just intended to never. Everything means in Shakespeare. When a fool says something that seems foolish, it's almost always a wisdom that the smart people lack. Um, and there are fools, like the fool in Lear and fools in, in, in Twelfth Night and some other plays. And so often the fools seem to be speaking gibberish. They're just comic, so critics say this is comic relief. Here, the, interesting to me, the fool says, the clown, if you have any music that may not be heard, to it again. But as I say, to hear music, the general. So, if you can hear the music, get out of it. We don't want to hear it. But if you can play a music that's not heard, play that. 
Now, what do we know about unheard music? This this would be a quest. This would be a question I would get at school on a quiz. You guys are on the spot now. Let's see. What do we know from Merchant of Venice about unheard music? Well, you can't hear it. It's it's in the heart. You can't hear it. It's within. Yeah. Who said that? Where do you go? Where I mean, so what? Well, Where do you go with that? That's what I'm trying to figure out. I mean, I I, I understand the music of the spheres, and Venice can't hear it. Right. So Good. when you're in the middle of things, as Venice is of, of all of its instability, preoccupied with the world, trapped by that, yeah. then you don't hear the music that exists, but uh, is silent to you. But I can't quite figure out how that goes with this piece. <laughs> yeah. I got that far and no further. Um, but by the way, is there meaning to a negative, a negation? Can meaning? Oh, sure. Yeah, sure. You, we know that in math, right? A negative has a meaning. Oh, yeah. And we know, we know, we, we have this thing in literature, I don't know if you guys have, but there, we, what we call apophatic knowledge. Yes. You all, you all familiar with this word? Yeah. Apophatic knowledge is a knowledge about those things unknown we can't hear, we can't know. Eliot's poetry is full of apophatic things. That The mystic is aware of things that can't be put into words. So apophatic knowledge is knowledge about those things that are just beyond us, that's there, but rarely known. It's hinted at, but we don't know it immediately. When the mystic comes into contact with God, he gets past the world of knowing as we know it, and enters a world that we don't know from the things we know. The music of the spheres belongs in that realm. You can't hear it. Remember, it's intellected. Only the remember, it's in our bodies we can't hear it. There's only one character in all of Shakespeare, Pericles, who actually hears the music. Because that's a mystical moment. You come into union with God's harmony. The music of the spheres is not heard. Keats has this poem where he talks about the unheard music is sweeter. Because we know it, it's a heavenly music. We're too caught up in our bodies and our senses. So for Plato, it was intellectual. You could only apprehend it in the mind. Remember, it's the angelic orders circling the planets. They're governing them. And each planet, each orbit, each sphere has its own note, its own harmony. When you put them together, it forms this heavenly music. And, and, once again, it's a reminder of poetry that nobody will enter heaven without entering a poetic realm where everything is beautiful in harmony. Um, so the music of the spheres we can't hear. So what's going on? So when the clown says, if you have a music that's unheard, play it. If it can be heard, get out of here. What's, is that an accident? Is Shakespeare, did that, is this just Shakespeare? Or is he saying something? What if he's saying that if you can illuminate something that is us, if you can give us part of God through that, or then, then go ahead. Otherwise, it's just go away, yeah. platter. Right. Yeah. And in that vein, the other thing to say, remember, Belmont is surrounded. It's defined by the music of the spheres. In Belmont, you have a, a sense of final ends. That's the way they live. Venice has no sense of final ends. Venice is a conveyor belt. It's the modern conveyor belt. 
There's no sense of ends. We are a consumerist world. We buy, we buy, we buy, we buy, we buy. You get back on the treadmill, you earn money, you buy. There's no sense of ends. Vents can be defined as a proliferation of means. It's a proliferation of means without ends. Yeah, we're on a treadmill. We just keep going. There's no end. I mean, it's just we're trapped in it. It's this decay. In Belmont, there is a sense of ends. Portionism. She's read Aristotle. She can only bring what she does to the courtroom because she knows what the end of justice is. Its ultimate end is good, justice. <coughs> it may require, I mean, Shylock's it. His death is um, up for grabs at the end because they turned the thing on him. He tried to kill somebody. So his own life is forfeit. Um, so justice may lead to a death of a man. But, but Belmont is a place of end. And the music of the spheres is, the, is, is an, an image. Um, it's a, it identifies a condition for Belmont. That's, you, we know that that's the way the father lived. He, were not, he would have not set up that ordeal. It's why Portia is obedient, why, why love is identified, why they all go back there. For Shakespeare to have this clown say, if you have any music that may not be heard to it, if you can play music that cannot be heard, play it. So what he's talking about is a music that's not heard. Now, why now? Because it's exactly at this point that the sinister action is going to be set in place because it couldn't be farther away from the music of the spheres. But right now, and, and the reason for this is, here's reading again. How often do we read negative things? How often do we look past the apophatic because it's not immediately present, it's not there? Good apophatic, ap apophatic poetry is a reminder that there's always something more that can't be expressed, that can't be seen. So right at this point, this whole question of if you, if, you, if you know music that's unheard, play it. He doesn't. He doesn't play. We're not going to hear this unheard music. Why? Because now we are entering a sinister action. Everything that's going to take place now is going to be contrary to that world of the music of the spheres. Well, he, the century before this, when he's writing uh, that great piece called the, uh, the, uh, are we watching, um, uh, the cloud of the knowing. I was going to say the dark cloud or dark night of the soul or cloud of the knowing. Yeah, the cloud of the knowing is yeah. when you go into contemplative prayer. Yes. You go into the silence of God. Yes, yes. And that's what. Yes, yes. So it's, yeah. and, and he makes a point of poetry comes out of that silence. Yeah, yeah, that's a perfect analogy to dark cloud, yeah, the, of unknowing. Yeah. Um, let me just turn you to one thing, and we'll stop for today. I wanted to go through this. Um, um, so the beginning of Act Three is the beginning of. It's an intensification of what Iago began in Venice but becomes completed now because everything he does with people has one end. It's to destroy Othello and um, Cassio. I don't want to go through this because we don't have time. It's time to stop. But let me just point this to you. You know that what happens is, is um, Amelia gets the hanky. She gives it to 
Iago. Iago's going to drop it in Cassio's room. But um, he puts, Iago puts <coughs> Amelia on um, Cassio. Um, Cassio. Cassio goes to Desdemona um, to plead his case. Um, Cassio has just spoken to Desdemona when Iago and, and Othello arrive, and Iago insinuates that something's happened. He says, was that Cassio who just slunk off? And all of his language from that point on is insinuating. He never comes right out and says something because he's trying to protect himself to make himself seem good. While, while what he's doing is painting a dark picture and making something of Cassio that's not true. But look at the way, look at the way it unfolds. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this really quickly. Take from about line 100. Um, this is just after Othello said, Excellent wretch, perdition, catch my soul, but I, but I do love thee, and when I love thee not, chaos has come again. Look what happens. Othello. Iago says, with that Cassio, Othello, he did from first to last. Why dost thou ask? Are you all with me about line 90 or so? What, what, wait, 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 wait. what page is it? What do you Act, Act 3. Act 3, what scene? What is it? 119. 119? Act 3. What line? 123. 123. Aren't we Act 3, Scene 3? We're Act 3, Act 3 Scene 3, about line, somewhere line 95 in my text. Okay. Um, notice what Iago says, but for, for, but for a satisfaction of my thought, no further harm. Why have thy thought, Iago? I did not think he had been acquainted with her. Oh yes, and went between... Now, thought, thought, think. Now watch how often those words come up. Oh yes, between us very oft. Go down. Is he honest? Honest, my lord. Honest, I honest. My lord, for aught I know, what dost thou think? Think, my lord. Think, my lord. By heaven he echoes me. Is there some monstrous in his thought? The word think and thought must... Re I haven't counted the number of times, but it's got to be close to 25, 50 times. Are you all following me? I mean, go on, go on down about line 1 to 20. I dare, I dare swore, I think he's sincere. I think so too. Go down. Um, um, nay, yet there's more in this. I prithee, speak to me as to thy thinkings, as thou dost ruminate, and give thy worst of thoughts, the worst of words. They go on and on and on. Thought and think recur with almost numbing frequency. Why? Hmm? And that's the poetry. The repetition of the word. Think, think, thought. Flows. But it's also bereft of deeper feeling. If you're thinking rationality is good. Right. Intellect is good. But yeah. if it doesn't have a deeper sort of like if law is put The affections in the heart, yeah. Remember, Othello comes from a warrior world. There couldn't be anything more different to this man than to enter a Venetian world that frames itself in terms of thinking, the resourcefulness of the intellect. Shakespeare's showing us, I think, that he's being undone by, by this intellectual Venetian world in which the intellect is encouraged to do so much, to think, to be resourceful, to justify. So all these thoughts, I mean, they don't, they don't have a good heart, Iago's manipulating Othello, is 
showing us, I think, in a more profound way, the way in which the intellect can undo being. I don't think, I don't think that's going to mean as much as it should mean to you. When we get to Winter's Tale, it will, because then you'll see it. Um, remember that the original sin against God was intellectual pride. It was spiritual. Angels don't have bodies. It's interesting because in Christianity, um, the Protestants tend to look at the body, you know, the sexual sins as the graver sins. Catholics look at intellectual sins as the graver. Remember at the bottom of the inferno was fraud. It's the abuse of the intellect. Because the intellect can destroy being. It can refuse it. We can use the mind to make something be what it's not. Remember what I said before earlier for St. Thomas. Truth is the conformity of the intellect, the mind, with things. It has to conform to them, to, to be in accord with them. Or it's not truthful. The truth is what is. The mind grasping it. The danger for the intellect is to make the world something it isn't. It's to annihilate it. What does Satan want to do? Annihilate God. He wants to reject him, refuse him, because he's not God himself. What are, according to Dante, what are our gravest sins? I mean, think about it. If you look at the descent into hell, fraud was at the center. It's the abuse of the mind. When you look at purgatory, the, the sins closest to love are carnal sins. Lust is the, it goes, remember, pride, anger, pride, envy, wrath, sloth, gluttony, no, avarice, gluttony, lust. The top sins are love of good things, generally physical things, food, sex. And sex, lust, is the highest because it's the closest one to love. So in terms of severity, the spiritual sins are always the graver. They're the ones that make us most like Satan. The grave danger to man is intellectual pride. It's a spiritual sin. So Shakespeare is, I don't think this is an accident. Othello's being manipulated by a mind that he's not used to dealing with. And I think what Shakespeare's showing us is that to live in a Venetian world, to live in the commercial world, doesn't mean just getting ahead. It means being very aware of the way in which people use their minds to do what they do. I'm saying this catechetically. I want to stop out, I want to step outside of what I do as a teacher because this is a catechetical setting. You know, I asked the class last week because, why read this? If you read the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Aeneid and the Divine Comedy, you can all see that there's this parousia aspect, the second coming, that there's an explicit prophetic quality. It's pointing to Christ, even before Christ's game, except for the Divine Comedy, but the pagan epics, yeah? Here in Shakespeare, Christ has come. We're in a Christian world and we're on the verge of modernity. Why do we read Shakespeare in this setting? Because for me, the prophetic element isn't as clear as it was in the pagan world. I, I'm arguing that Portia is an image of um, Christ, but where do we find Christ in a tragedy? And I'm asking this seriously now because that's a work ahead of us. Where do we find Christ here? I've been suggesting that some of it is in the reading of it. We've got to learn to read this well to, to see what poetry can do for us. Because that's the, that's the last thing people are going to connect with prophecy. It's poetry, it's not prophecy. Where do we find Christ in this? Um, well, I mean, one of the things 
that seems to me to serve that purpose, I mean, that's the reason we came together, is that he's, he's helping us to see evil and not be innocent about it. That we have a responsibility in this world to bring Christ to it. Where do we find Christ here? That's another question. I mean, that's for us next week when we meet. Where is Christ in Othello? But also, where is evil? How do we deal with it if we don't see it? And everything, we're, everything that's going on here, either everything's apophatic, it's hidden, or it's covered up. Iago's called Honest Iago. And every character calls him that. And, and almost always at a time when he's deceiving them. Something's going on right in front of their eyes that they're not seeing. So what is Shakespeare? Does he belong to this world you know, of getting out of the cave? Is he one of those poets that Plato would say is helping us to get out of the cave? If so, how? What's he doing? Can we see it? Can we name it? One of the things I would say is he's making it clear. Remember what we saw in, the, in Merchant of Venice? The Christians are too cavalier. Too cavalier. They take too much for granted. What we're learning here is that there is going to be a terrible price for people's innocence. Their refusal to deal with evil. Everybody's going to die. What did Christ say? Be as wise as the serpent. Isn't that as gentle as the dove? We're being asked to put our innocence away because I believe there's a pride in that. Like we can take things for granted. Shakespeare's helping us to, to be on guard, to, to see, in, like Dante in Florence, that there are things inherent in our regime that we have got to take care of. Let me leave it there. Next week we'll finish Othello and look at, we'll look at the, the scene in which Iago works on Othello where he puts on the play with a hanky and I want to ask that. Why signs? What is it about this regime that makes people so susceptible to signs? Like, like the Jews in the ancient world and the disciples. What we are, particularly, particularly for a rationalistic world, the way we give meaning to signs, images, appearances, what, what is it about this world that seems to encourage it more than in other regimes? And you know, what do we make of Othello at the end when he takes his life? And so we'll finish up Othello next week and we'll start Hamlet. You said next week, you don't know when? I'll write you guys. I, my, my preference would be Monday, but we may put it off for two weeks. Yeah. And meet. We can't come Monday morning. Really. You can't. What about Monday night? Monday night. Okay, then then it looks right now it looks like two weeks because next week is Thanksgiving week. Um, we'll meet Monday night. We won't meet Friday, and the week after is is an Advent. It's a week filled up with ad, Advent activities, so there won't be any meetings that week. So the next meeting we'll have will be a f couple weeks off. <clears throat> Yeah, I'll, I'll, we, I'm going to meet Monday night um, to, to finish Othello and do Hamlet. But to meet with the Friday morning group um, looks to me like we'll probably meet two weeks off on, on Friday morning. But I'll write everybody and let you know. Okay. We'll, we'll do it right away tonight, too, because we've got to decide. It. And remember, the first Sunday of January, Suzanne said, I think it was the 8th, we're planning to have um, a potluck, asking everybody to bring something. We'll meet in the hall. We're going to invite the whole church. How many people? I don't, I, who's, you know, who knows how many are going to come? 
to watch the film Winter's Tale. I'll, while you're eating, I'll give a half hour presentation. I'll just lay out some stuff that, because I think this is Shakespeare's greatest poem, I, or play. It, it, is, it is the equivalent of what, what um, Dante does in the Paradiso, but like the plays, it's so much more human. There's this, these awful things happen in this marriage between a husband and a wife. I don't, I don't want to go into it, but it, it, to me, it, it, by the way, it takes the Othello story, husband and wife, Othello does the it takes the husband and wife story and the husband does, does something like Othello, but it's deeper because it doesn't have a, an external excuse. There's no Iago working on Leontes. So in Winter's Tale, he's showing that the responsibility rests with the man himself, not because of what a man did to him, um, which is what goes on Othello. So he gets much more to the root of, of this tragic quality. What, and in fact, in that play, I'm going to name it. It's going to be the masculine intellect, the male intellect. Which, which, and, I, and by saying that, I, I don't want to exclude women out of that because women are in some ways just as susceptible. But I think the principle of it is in the man. And Shakespeare's revealing that. It's, 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 the, it's the most extraordinary play that I've ever read. It puts me to tears every time I watch it. It's hard to watch and not. This is it's such an amazing play. There's this point in the play where when Leonti accuses his wife of infidelity, just like Othello. And um, my son teaches at, our middle son teaches at Ave Maria in Florida, and we went last year, and they happened to be doing that play, and they were performing it. It was, a, I mean, it was a college performance. It wasn't, a, but it was a good, it was, it was decent. But in that scene where the king, Leontes, accuses his wife, I mean, I could not watch that without, it's just um, powerful, powerful play, powerful, powerful. So it'll be good to see it, instead of just thinking about it. So first Sunday of January, we'll have... As Actually, not the 8th, it's the next, the 8th, the 8th, the 8th, and we'll, we'll probably meet 5.30, potluck, everybody will sign up, I'll ask you all to sign up to bring something, so we'll have a good meal, and we'll watch the film, and then the following week we'll have one meeting, on. we'll just talk about it, and then we start Moby Dick, Shakespeare's over. <laughs>